I'll turn your Bibles, please, to John chapter 4. It wouldn't be unusual, would it, in a Christian context or in any religious context to have a discussion about faith. But how do we define faith? Everybody thinks they know what faith involves. Some time ago in a religious studies class at a, what you would call a public school here, uh, They wouldn't call that there because public schools are private schools in England, you understand? Because they're very awkward. Uh, But in a religious studies class in the UK, a boy was asked, or a class was asked, how would you define faith? One bright spark replied like this, sir, they were very polite, this was a long time ago, sir, faith is believing what you know ain't true. Faith is believing what you know ain't true. On the other hand, take Ambrose Bierce's definition. Faith, definition. Belief without evidence in what is told by one who speaks without knowledge of things without parallel. Many people relegate faith to the species of superstition. Others regard faith as a kind of generic benefit. It's good to have a faith, they say doesn't really matter what it's in so long as you have a faith. Do you have a faith? This is something I hear in the hospital ward. People come alongside someone who's ill, and they ask them the question, do you have a faith? Well, is faith a generic thing? There are three things we can say about faith just by way of introduction as we come to this story this evening. The first is this, that everybody believes something. Everybody believes something. Even the scientist believes the so-called assured findings of science, even where these assured findings of science cannot be tested by observation or experiment. They believe. The second thing I want to say is that intense belief will not make something true that isn't true. So when I was a little boy and I got a Superman costume outfit for Christmas, they called them costumes in those days, Uh, I discovered that it did not give me Superman powers. I wanted to jump off tall buildings, but just to be sure, I jumped off a low wall near where I lived. And sure enough, no matter how often I jumped off the wall, I didn't soar up into the atmosphere. My faith wasn't strong enough, perhaps you want to say. Nonetheless, I had faith to jump off a low wall, and it should have worked. Intense belief will not make something true that isn't true. And the third thing I want to say by way of introduction is, disbelief cannot destroy objective reality. People sometimes say this to you, don't they? They say about something that you know to be true because you have access to facts that they don't, they will say to you, I just don't believe that. Disbelief cannot destroy objective reality. So that when people say, I don't believe in God, that doesn't settle anything. If God exists, then saying I don't believe in God doesn't make him disappear. Saying it strongly, I don't believe in God, doesn't make him disappear. No matter how intense your disbelief is, it doesn't change objective reality. 
George Muller was well known for his generosity, his giving away several fortunes that he had uh, accumulated over his lifetime, uh, building orphanages, this was in the 19th century, and living by faith. And he says this in one place, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith is where man's power ends. Faith is where man's power ends. Now, we're looking at this story tonight in John. The emergence of faith in an individual. At the end of the story of the woman of Samaria that immediately precedes it, and if you want to glance back, you can see this, we discover this striking statement on the part of the townspeople of Sychar, where she lived. She was a woman with a very uh, disreputable past. She was not the most popular woman in the village, Uh, a small village, and having at least six men that she'd been through made her notorious. And yet, when she came and told them that she had discovered the Messiah, uh, the, the people had responded immediately. They went out to check Jesus out, to find out if He was. And after that, they come back, after they spent time with Jesus, they come back to the woman, and they say this to her, it's no longer because of what you said we believe. In other words, they had believed what she said. That was a miracle in itself, that they would believe this woman. She wasn't the most responsible or respectable woman, but they believed her testimony. But now they say it's not only because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We have heard, and we know. We have heard, and we know. First of all, they believed the woman's testimony. Then they went to meet with Jesus. Then they listened to Jesus. And because of what they heard, they now knew, and they believed. They believed, and they embraced Jesus as Israel's Messiah. And although they didn't belong to Israel, their Messiah as well that He was the Savior of the world. And as the Savior of the world, that put Him in a place of God. God is the Savior. God is salvation. They understood that. That when you called Jesus Savior, you were giving Him a royal title. You were saying, He's the King. He's the Rescuer. He's the Deliverer. That means He has rights of Lordship over everybody that He has rescued. He has rights of lordship. And when they said, Jesus is Savior, that was a direct contradiction to the political philosophy of the age that said, Caesar is Savior. And they were contradicting that. And they were challenging Rome, and also they were sending a signal to all the nations of Jesus' right to command people's destiny, wherever they were. Salvation may very well be of the Jews, as Jesus said, but it is not only for Jews, as witnessed by the salvation of these Samaritans who belong to the most hated foreigner group as far as Jews were concerned. So the woman's story began with Jesus having to go through Samaria, staying at the wellside, meeting this woman, and now we find out why. 
Back in chapter 3, God so loved the world. And here is God loving the world through Jesus. Loving the world through Jesus and gathering the first fruits of a greater harvest, a universal harvest of people who were coming to know God through Christ. So our text starts with a contrast. Having just heard of the despised Samaritan's lively faith in Jesus, we're now alerted to the quite different reception that Jesus gets from his own people in Galilee, where he was brought up. From Sychar to Cana, it's a distance of about 40 miles, a walk that you could do in two or three days. And so walking from Sychar to Cana, uh, we are introduced to this statement that Jesus, uh, we're told, himself had testified, verse 44, <clears throat> that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. That was a, a, prophet, a word that was going around. Now, the key word to note there, and we'll come back to it in a moment, is the word prophet. What does a prophet do? A prophet speaks the word of God. And Jesus testified, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, Galilee was Jesus' home area. This was the area in which he grew up in Nazareth, about 10 miles away from Cana, Cana of Galilee, where he'd turned water into wine, and about 15 miles away from Capernaum, where this official, who had a sick son, came from. Galilee was his homeland in a special sense. Now he's leaving Samaria, which is not his homeland, and he's turning to his own stomping grounds. And what we're being told there in verse 43, 44 is this, that he is intentionally now going back where he knows he is not welcome, where he knows he is not honored. That's important. Where he knows that he's not understood, where he's not honored for who he is, who he really is, Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world. What the Samaritans get. He knows the people where he's going don't get it. <clears throat> and it's at this point that we have what to some people looks like a contradiction. Look at the, the text. We're just told Jesus testified, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. That, 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 you don't, didn't expect that, did you? You didn't expect it to say that because there's no honor. The prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Here comes Jesus back to Galilee, and the Galileans welcomed him. Now, why did they welcome him? Surely that's a contradiction to the no honor thing. Well, look at the reason why they welcomed him. Because they'd seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They'd seen the miracles he'd performed. They'd seen Jesus go from a nobody to a somebody. They'd seen him go from obscurity to celebrity. They'd seen him go from just one of their own boys to a boy who has amazing ability to do spectacular things. He'd performed miracles there. They knew that. And they knew the story of the miracle at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. In other words, we're told the truth in verse 44, and then in verse 45, there's a bit of irony. You're meant to turn up your mouth in a smile as you hear that these Galileans, who did not honor Jesus for who he was, welcomed Jesus for what he was doing, for what he had done 
in Jerusalem. Because what we are being told is that although they did not honor him as Israel's Messiah and the Savior of the world, they were prepared to welcome him in hopes that they would see him do his stuff, perform the miracles. Now that's the context in which the story of this man's faith develops. In fact, faith has been introduced to us already in John's Gospel. We, we haven't focused on it up to now. It was there in chapter 2 when the disciples put their faith in him and then later misunderstood him. Then the Jews challenge him, and many Jews appear to believe in him. But they become described as spurious converts back in chapter 2, verses 23 and 25. Let me read that to you. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew all people, and he needed nobody to bear witness about man because he knew what was in man. He knew, he knew, in a way you and I can't evaluate. You and I don't have this insight, Jesus did, to be able to say about another person, oh yes, their faith that they profess is real faith or not real faith. Usually, we come to a conclusion about something, somebody based on how they behave or how they act or how they react. But Jesus knew it was in man. This was a God thing. He understood and he recognized that these were spurious believers. They were believers, but they were spurious believers. Their faith, John says, was not the kind of faith that Jesus accepted. It was a form of excitement with the miracles. Not, the, not at what the miracles pointed to. The miracles pointed to the beauty and the glory of Jesus as the Son of God, Israel's Messiah, and the Savior of the world. The very things these Samaritan strangers had recognized. But their faith, these Jews' faith, did not enable them to see that. They were excited, but they only wanted a miracle. They welcomed him because of his celebrity, because of the publicity, because of the miracle. And that's the context in which we see this man's faith emerge. So it's not surprising to find, and now I get to the actual sermon, it's not surprising to find, so that bit was free, uh, that the first thing that you notice in the story of this man is his ambivalent faith. That's, that's my first point his ambivalent faith. Let me read it to you again. He came, Jesus, to Canaan, Galilee, where he made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to see him and asked him to come down and heal his son because he was at the point of death. Now, at one level, this man came looking for Jesus. That was a good thing. He came looking for Jesus because of his power and his gifts. He heard he'd come from Judea to Galilee, so he must have heard the news of what was going on in Judea before he came back to Galilee, all these miracles he'd been performing. He had heard that. So he's coming because he wants to find Jesus because of the power and the gifts. He came to Jesus because he was driven by a concern for his boy, his son who was ill, his son who was deathly ill. Uh, all we can tell about this man is that he was probably a Gentile. 
He was probably a royal official. He was employed probably by Herod Antipas. But he'd heard signs, he'd heard reports from those who'd seen the signs that Jesus performed. And what is uppermost in his mind, get this, what is uppermost in his mind as he comes to Jesus is not Jesus' identity, but Jesus' ability. Not who Jesus is, but what Jesus can do. That's what's uppermost in his mind. And so he'd walked the 14 miles or 15 miles in order to meet Jesus. Now let's get into the human interest aspect of the story here, because there is human interest here. This man's child was deathly ill. Can you imagine the anguish that he must have felt? In John's gospel, even that is a kind of contradiction, a sign of contradiction right through the story. You go back to John chapter 1, and the world is full of light and life. But now that same world that was made full of light and life is shattered by darkness and death. And for John, early on in this book, the original creator of the universe, who created light and life at the beginning, has now entered this world of darkness and death. And people have begun to encounter him. Nicodemus, the great religious leader in chapter 3. The immoral woman of the well of Sychar in Samaria in chapter 4. And both these stories in their different ways give pictorial representations of what it means to have faith. It, it illustrates that principle you find in the book of Ecclesiastes, where it says, God has set eternity in our hearts. That there is in human beings a sense that the finite is not the end of it. That the present is not the end of it. In the, in the words of Pascal, there is a God-shaped void at the center of our lives. And that void can only really be filled by Jesus. If you've ever watched a little child playing with one of these toys, where there are various shapes, perhaps a star shape or a cross shape, uh, uh, or, or a pyramid shape, and they're trying to put the toys into it. A two-year-old, perhaps, trying to put the toys into it. They, they try, and they, they're, they're a bit uncoordinated, and they bash the shape to try and get it into the hole, the round one to try and get into the square hole, and they batter, and then they pick up the, the hammer, and they'll hit it, use the hammer to try and get it to fit. And so many people spend their lives trying to fill the God-shaped void in their, in their lives with things that don't fit. And they get very angry, and they get very agitated, and they get very disturbed and frustrated because they can't do it. And that has been exposed, really, in the heart of Nicodemus, in the heart of this woman, and here in the heart of this man whose boy was ill. And it begins with a desperate prayer. Look at this. Help me, he says. And that's where prayer really begins. We come to Jesus always with a sense that we are beggars. We come with empty hands. We have nothing. We need him. We need what he has. We come to his feet. We come to the feet of Jesus. And we kind of make ourselves vulnerable and we say, help me. And to begin with, Jesus does not appear very helpful. Look at the story. Jesus said to him, said to the man that is, you people, that is plural, y'all use, see signs and wonders you 
But you will not believe unless you people, unless you all, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He says it to the man. He addresses it to the man, but he's talking to everybody else within earshot. He's saying to the Galileans, look, this is what you're like. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He's saying to this man, you just belong to the rest of them. You're a sign seeker. You're a curiosity seeker. You're a wonder worshiper. You come to me, but what you really want is to see the fireworks. You're all agog at what I might do. You've come along just to see the sensational and the supernatural. If you have belief, well, it's shallow, it's superficial, it's ambiguous. It's more about self-interest than about Christ's interest. It's not the kind that unites you to me and who sees and treasures me as the Son of God, full of grace and truth. It's an ambivalent faith. That's where it begins. But there's a second description, I think, in this story of this man. But the next thing we see is a persistent faith. For actually, Jesus is testing him. He says to the man what he's saying to everybody in general. And what he says to everyone in general is testing the man to whom he's speaking. The man who's asked for the miracle for a dying son is in a milieu where people love to see miracles. He seems on the surface to be asking for the same reason that any unbelieving person would ask for a miracle. I have a health need. Fix it. Not I have sin. Forgive me. Give me power to live for you. Unbelievers don't love God. They use God. And so Jesus bluntly says to this man, Jesus says to him, that he and the other Galileans are sign seekers. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. It seems, does it not, tough, insensitive, especially since this man had given up his round of golf that morning and had set out and walked that 14 miles to get to Jesus. Jesus was burdened to make sure that those who come to him were not merely spectators, but those who really trusted in him. Do you remember a story in Matthew 9? A woman whose daughter had just died, and she's begging Jesus to come down and touch her daughter and revive her. And Jesus is on his way down, and on his way down, he suddenly finds himself in a great throng of people, and to everybody's surprise, Surrounded by this mob of people who are kind of following him and jostling him down the road, suddenly Jesus stops. I think it's the most hilarious picture. I've often tried to imagine. Here they are going at a fair pace to get to this woman's house whose daughter has just died. They're marching around down the road. All these people are behind him. And Jesus stops suddenly. And I imagine all these people bouncing into him and bouncing into each other. Chaos reigns. Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched you? We're all kind of rolling around here, bumping into you. Who touched you, for goodness sake? Because Jesus had felt power go out from him, you remember. And he stops there, and he delays going to that woman's home to see her dead daughter. He delays in order that he might take time to deal with a woman who was so desperate so desperate that she'd reached out to touch the hem of his garment. 
and he deals with her. And you know, often in the way Jesus deals with us, there is a delay between our asking and his helping. I think it's Derek Thomas who puts it like this, that very often when we call Jesus, he puts us on hold. I don't know if he plays that awful music you get when you're on hold, but he, he puts us on hold. He doesn't talk to us right away. He doesn't answer us right away. Even when circumstances are most trying, we discover that. We discover that in our lives. And that's what he does to this man. He puts him on hold. He kind of arrests the man. He's trying to put the man off. Is this man, does this man really believe? Does he have real faith? What does the man do? You notice he doesn't comment. What does the man do? He says in verse 20, 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. He will not be put off. He will not be put down. Even though he knows it's God now putting him off, he won't be put off. You know that phrase in Matthew eleven twelve? I think it is, where Jesus says, the days are coming and have now come when violent men will take the kingdom by force. And what he means is this, that faith is aggressive. It's determined. It will not be put off. It's persevering faith. This man is desperate. He's unashamed to beg Jesus. In fact, he wants Jesus to be ashamed. Not to do anything. He's putting... Jesus on the back foot. He's sitting in front of all of these people, Sir, will you come down before my child dies? You think, isn't that a bit impertinent to say that to Jesus? And yet, all the examples of prayer that we have in the Bible, especially, I'm thinking immediately of Daniel's great prayer in Daniel 9, Daniel comes to God and he argues with God. Well, some of the remarkable prayers of C.H. Spurgeon. He comes to God, and he argues, and he encourages us. Spurgeon says, when you come to God, you must bring your arguments with you. What are they? They are God's promises. And every time you feel rebuffed, you say to him, but you said, but you said, and you argue with him. What are you doing when you're arguing with God using God's Word? You're exercising faith. You're demonstrating that you believe God, that you believe His Word. And you're, in a sense, you're doing what He urges you to do because He wants you to know that He's going to do what He's going to do, he's, what, he, what He's already determined to do. He's going to do it in answer to your prayers. I remember... Uh, doing university mission in Aberdeen once. And in the, in the pre-preparation for that, for that university mission, we had some real focus on prayer. There was a quotation that was used, and I can't remember who, whose words it was. I, I've made them my own and wish I could just tell you they were mine, but you might check it out in Google, and then I'd be exposed uh, for being a plagiarist. But the, 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 it kind of goes like this. First of all, God determines what He's going to do. First of all. Second of all, He stimulates His people to pray. That is to ask for things. And then third, He does what He determined to do in answer 
to the prayers of his people. Why? Because he wants us to have the joy of being a participant in what he's doing in the world. And do you see that there's a shift in what this man does? Come down and heal my son, is what he says first. And then, when he thinks Jesus isn't going to do that, he says, Sir, come down before my child dies. I think there's a significance in that change, that alteration there. He's saying to Jesus, okay, I don't care if you don't heal, but please will you come? Will you come? We need you at my house. We need you at my house. Will you come down? And the shift is focused. His focus has shifted. Away from what he wants Jesus to do to Jesus himself. Will you come down? Sir, will you come down? Not Jesus plus, but Jesus only. So we've seen a movement then in his experience from ambiguous faith to persistent faith. And then, thirdly, we see confident faith. What does Jesus do? The man says, will you come down? Jesus only says one thing to him. Look at what it says. Go. Your son will live. The Greek reads like this. Go, your son lives. Your son lives. And John then says, verse 50, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Isn't that remarkable? The man had asked Jesus to come with him. But when Jesus said the words, go, your son lives, the man obeys, without question, he believed and went. He did not insist on seeing a miracle. He did not complain that Jesus would not come with him. Amazingly, he simply left. John says he left believing. He left believing. In spite of all the misconceptions, in spite of all that, uh, that atmosphere of, of accusation, in a sense, that was awakened by Jesus' initial response, he had gotten over that, and he took Jesus at his word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. He trusts Jesus. He takes him at his word. Do you remember back in chapter 2, Mary said to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's faith. It has nothing whatsoever to do with your personality. It has nothing whatsoever to do with whether you're a type A personality or a type Z personality. It's taking Jesus at His Word. And I think this sheds light on what is otherwise a very strange statement in verse 44, when Jesus points out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. What does a prophet do? What did I tell you he does? He proclaims the Word of God. They had welcomed him because of what he was doing. But the test, you see, of people is not their reaction to what Jesus can do, the signs and the wonders. The real test is our reaction to Jesus' word, what he says. What we find here is the reversal of the normal grounds we have for believing things. Normally we say this, seeing is believing. But here this man operates on a new principle. 
Believing is seeing. He would not be put off. And do you see the outcome of this whole episode? The clock still isn't working. He's on his way home, this nobleman. The servants are coming out to greet him. Can you imagine the scene? He's coming along. It's the next day, by the way. That means he's actually stayed overnight somewhere. If he'd been really desperate, he'd have gone home straight home. But, but he's believed Jesus' word. Isn't that remarkable? Next day, he gets there. About 15 miles he's walked. He's a few miles from home, and his servants are coming towards him. And they exchange stories. And they tell the nobleman the one thing he wants to know, the one thing the servants want to tell him. It's the boy is alive. The boy is doing well. And the nobleman asks, at what time? At what time did this young boy, was he restored to health? They tell him it was the seventh hour. And he does the math. He does the calculation. He discovers it was at the very hour that Jesus had spoken a word from a distance. No Hail Marys, no incantations, no handkerchiefs blessed for five shekels and mailed through the post. Just a word. Just a sovereign word. Just a word spoken by the Creator King. That's all it took. That's all it took. That's all it took to create the place out of nothing. That's all it took to heal this boy from a 15-mile distance. It might have been 15,000 miles. It might have been 15 million light years. The Word of Jesus does what the Word of Jesus does. It makes things happen. And this man's faith is established. It's established. And what happens in this man's case, do you notice, is that not only does he believe, but all his household believe. His whole household is influenced by this. This is a, a man who is converted, and his whole family, his covenant family now, are brought into the believing community of God's people. It's been a complete transformation in this man's life. And he gets into the top ten charts for Galilee. This was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So here's faith, you see. I don't know where you rate yourself tonight. Maybe you come this evening with a bit of ambiguous faith. You're not quite sure. You believe, but you don't believe. You're... Belief, your faith is riddled with doubts, riddled with uncertainties, questions. What you're perhaps saying is, well, you know, I, I think if only Jesus would give me a really ecstatic experience, maybe, you know, if I had a vision or I had some kind of a ripple of excitement down my backbone, maybe that would do it for me. If only, if only there was something extraordinary that happened, then I'd believe. Is that the way you are? Do you expect to feel something when you believe? What do you expect to feel? What is it you're anticipating faith looks like? Do, do you think that there is something attached to faith that is a kind of spectacular, supernatural kind of thing that, 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 that gives you a warm glow in the pit of your stomach? Is yours an ambiguous faith? You... You're really not sure what you want when you want faith. 
The challenge of this passage is, Luke, real faith is just believing Jesus. It's not even just believing in Jesus. It's believing him. It's taking his word. It's resting on his word. It's just saying, I, I, I believe you can do whatever you say you're going to do. Even though there's a delay for me to see the fulfillment of it, I believe you can do that. God raised you from the dead. God raised you from the dead, and there were people there who were witnesses of your resurrection. That puts you in a class all of your own. I believe, I believe that your word does what it says in the packet it does. It works. And this evening you can find that for yourself. You can take Jesus at his word and you can discover that it changes your life every bit as much as it changed this man's life and had repercussions for his whole family and is recorded in Scripture. So your transformation will be recorded in an even better book than Scripture, the book of life. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this evening that as we've <clears throat> come to your word tonight, that you would give us great comfort from it. We see ourselves at different parts on the timeline of this man's emerging faith. We see our faith challenged sometimes by circumstances, by doubts, by even the word of God itself challenging us, making us uncomfortable. And for us who are being challenged then this evening, the question is, will, will we persevere? Will we be persistent? Will we keep on, as it were, pressing upon you, pressing upon God? Maybe we've been looking for reality, looking for meaning, looking for you, O oh, oh God. And we haven't found you yet. We pray that tonight you would help us to be persistent. Because your word says, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. And we pray you would reward those who seek you by making yourself known. So that like the people of Samaria, we can say, we have heard and now we know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. In his name we pray. Amen.